Hello there. Good afternoon, Adela. Good afternoon, Stefan. And hello to everyone out there in podcast land and welcome to the Nightlamp podcast, episode number 11. Hi, everyone. Um, well, we're here to have a, a, another little chat. Another discussion, yes. So much going on in the world, in our world, and so much going on out there in the world. I think if we get too global, <laughs> this could be the first ever seven-day continuous podcast. <laughs> I might get a bit hungry in the middle if that's okay, Stefan. <laughs> and I certainly will need a cup of tea. Yes, and I yes, I apologise mm-hmm. again, Adela, for not having milk in the fridge today. Not that I wished to draw any attention to that, Stefan, but there was a small oversight in the office supplies department. I, I get it, I yeah. get it. There's one one mark against my name. Yes. Um, well, it's been it's been a really busy uh, last little while since we've our last had a podcast. very frantic. Mm-hmm. Five weeks, I think. Very busy. Yes, yes. Um, one of my favourite days uh, that we've had, you know, of the last couple of months was the was one workshop that we had here um, at the Nightlamp headquarters, and I, I just really, really enjoyed that day. Um, yes, it was a very good collection of people attending from a, a quite a varied. A set of sources and employment. There were some people from schools. Yeah, we had we had teachers, uh, youth workers. We foster had carers. Foster, yes, we had a couple of foster carers. We had case managers. Yeah, um, all sorts of people hmm. um, and, and managers it, from welfare services. Yeah, true, yeah. and it, it just made for such a, a great day. And mm. I actually really enjoyed. Uh, usually, either you're running a seminar on your own, or I'm running one. It mm. was actually really nice to do one together. It is nice because you kind of we can bounce off each other. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. reasonably well. Yeah. Well, we didn't argue. We didn't argue. <laughs> oh, you know, I held back. <laughs> I'm, I just no seriously. Go there. I wouldn't <laughs> even try. No, um, but I think the nice thing about co-presenting is that it allows us to have a, a presentation that is in a more conversational style, yeah, which yeah. then gives the latitude for people to join in that conversation. So it becomes more like a big conversation than a training. I'm doing those inverted commas with mm-hmm. my fingers mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Than a sort of formal training. Because I think sometimes formal training is a bit rigid. I, I often to explore say, concepts. At, yeah, I yeah. often say at the beginning of workshops that I would much rather have a day-long conversation mm. than a day-long lecture. Yep. Um, and I often uh, think to myself that um, when my kids were children, um, their version of hell would have been a day-long lecture by me. <laughs> I certainly don't want to subject anyone to that. <laughs> Yes, that would be my version of hell. No, no, I'm not going there. <laughs> uh, we've got a couple more workshops. Yeah. We've got another one to on do. December the 17th. On December 17th. I'm, I'm openly spruiking that one. <laughs> um, um, come out and see us. Um, you'll have a ball, no doubt. And no there's doubt. a lot of really good, fruitful discussion. Um, and I think one of the things that certainly I saw happen at the last one mm. 
was emerging from the conversations. People get a multidimensional understanding of the theory in a different way yeah. than if someone's just talking at them. Yeah. Or, I'll show my bias here, or doing some of those sort of silly exercises that sometimes trainers make people do. Like role play. Yeah, or other things, you know, that they don't actually have anything much to do with the content. <laughs> They're things that people have been taught that you do for icebreakers and, and to break up the monotony, mm-hmm. uh, apparently, of the content. Personally, I'm more a devotee of the content, but delivered in a conversational way, yeah, yeah, which yeah. does break it up and lighten it and gives it light and shade. But if, if ever I'm in a training session, take note people who might be training me and they do one of those activities, I usually go to the toilet. Right. Because <laughs> I don't like them. <laughs> well, then that becomes your icebreaker. Well, it's my icebreaker. You see? But we won't talk about it widely. Um, but butcher's paper, that's the other thing. There are no, There's no butcher's paper. No, take note, everyone. Yeah. Do not bring butcher's paper out for a dollar. It can be handy sometimes. Well, yeah, to wrap chops up in. <laughs> there's no butcher's paper in any workshops that we do. Well, and do you know, uh, the week before that workshop, I will be in Tasmania. Yes. And we have our first ever, um, well, actually my second, but but this particular workshop we'll be doing for the first time in Launceston. Uh, we've got people from all over. We have people from Launceston, from Burnie booked in, and even some driving from Hobart as well, as we had in the last workshop, some people that came from Lakes Entrance. That's right. Hello there, yeah. lovely Lakes Entrance people. I know it was a big drive for it's you. a big drive, Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I'm really looking forward to my Tasmania trip. Yes, it's going to um, be just before Christmas, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and that will be at the uh, University of Tasmania at the Launceston or Newnham mm. campus. Um, and very, very much looking forward to that one. And that'll be our last workshop for the year. Yes. Yes. Well, the one here will be the last one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I got the dates mixed yes, up. Yes, yes, The one here so will be the last one. So that's on the 10th one. of December right. in Launceston. Okay. Get in touch with us. If you're hearing this and you live in Denmark and you desperately need to catch a plane to Launceston, <laughs> come and see us. Uh, you are welcome. i tell you what, if you come all the way from Denmark... He's well, going to make a big promise now. Are you going to promise something that we can't deliver on? Or I'll give you a Kit Kat if you come all the way from Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long way to come for a Kit Kat. Um, so there's been a lo- lot of talk lately out in the media. There's some themes that, uh, as, aside from the usual. I, I guess family violence has been in the forefront. Hmm. Um, it's been talked about everywhere, I, I guess, you know, coinciding with White Ribbon Day. Mm. Um, a lot of talk about family violence, um, and we were just talking before about the Q&A program on the ABC. Last yes, time. I don't know if listeners uh, have 
have seen the program that obviously was also scheduled to coincide with White Ribbon Day was called Hitting Home and it was produced on on the ABC by Sarah Ferguson, uh, ABC reporter, over two nights. And then that was followed up on the second night by a Q&A session, a special one. Um, I think it's very important to talk about the issue of family violence and it is really important that we do something about it because it is way too prevalent. But one of the things I have to be honest that disappointed me about hitting home was that it didn't actually talk about anything to do with trauma. And I found that a really lost opportunity. But when you say it didn't talk about trauma, uh, are you talking about trauma uh, suffered by victims of family violence? I'm talking about really the entire issue of family violence and its underpinnings that are clearly trauma-related in terms of unresolved childhood trauma. So, of course, primarily family violence is traumatic to those who suffer it. Be that women who are in the relationship and children who are in the household. But there is a very strong link between the phenomenon and unresolved childhood trauma in the perpetrators. Yes. yes. And, 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 and this was what be, was lost to me. It doesn't seem me. to be talked about. Now, we've, we've, obviously, we've got plenty of evidence to show that there is a real link there, and uh, we've got to start considering what is the role of childhood trauma, developmental trauma, um, what role does it play later in life mm. uh, in in violence, in perpetrating violence? Mm. And I guess uh, as a next step to that, perpetrating violence toward loved ones. Mm. So whether those perpetrators are men or women or whoever it might be, mm. that, ha- you know, how does the, the early childhood adversity actually impact on the way that they then react. Yes, and and my sense is that there is a hesitance to explore that because there may, and I say may because I can't be certain, there may be a sense that it is in some way attempting to excuse the behaviour. And I think it's important to make it very clear that looking to understand the causes and contexts of a piece of behaviour in no way is intended to excuse it. Well, we're looking for a solution, aren't we? I Mm. mean, we want it to Mm. stop and we need to have a solution. So Mm. I guess on one hand you've got the hand of justice Mm. and I think that that is... That has its own arm of advocacy, Mm. you know, in terms of justice. Like, what should we do to a person who hurts someone? Mm. Um, And I I don't feel like going into that now because it's very clear that, you know, that there's a big push for, all right, we need to look for retribution, sure, 
But if we can put that aside for the purpose of our discussion, mm. we want it to stop as well. Mm. So once you do something to that person, and once and that we know that jailing people and intervention orders and fines or whatever it might be actually don't really have an impact on its prevalence mm. and, and on its frequency after the fact, then what can we do? Well, I mean, uh, I think we know that very clearly because for many, many decades now, that is the approach we've been using. And at this moment in time, people are talking about an epidemic of violence towards mm. women. So clearly, those approaches don't produce lasting change. And, and no doubt that needs to be part of the sort of social yeah. structure and the, the way that of course. We, we, we mitigate things socially, but there has to be a solution and we can't have a solution without actually exploring the causes of violence. Mm. Now, one of the things that you talked, we were having a discussion last night and you were talking to me about the... Um, the use of, of the word control in talking about family The, the word control in over the two nights of the televising of Hitting Home, I wish I had actually written down how many times the word control was used in relation to the men who were being cited mm-hmm. as having been violent. It was used many, many, many times quite correctly because, indeed, I believe there is a very strong element of issue around need to control. But we're not necessarily going to resolve those issues by going, well, you haven't, you, you, you're controlling and st- stop being controlling. Hmm. We need to understand the cause of the control, right? Exactly. And so it's, the cause it, of the need to control. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. So what's underlying that? Yes. That if we see that as a symptom and not a cause itself. Exactly. If we see control itself as a symptom, then we have to think about well, what is causing mm. the need for control? The need for control to the point of violence, of hurting mm. somebody in your personal life. So yeah. what, what's, what is that cause and how can we explore well, it? Well, we, I suppose one thing I want to say before we explore that is that I think there is a, a common belief that the use of uh, the law and the justice system and the use of ways of understanding the underlying issues may somehow be mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. So I think people apply an either-or paradigm of thinking and I think that has been unhelpful and hasn't actually led to finding solutions that address the underlying causes. But looking for solutions that address the underlying causes does not mean that we have to let go of the justice awareness. No, no. So that's why I'm, I'm making, you know, going to great lengths to say it is not an either or. It is a both and paradigm of thinking. Well, wasn't it? One is an effect. Yeah. Right? That's right. And so one well, paradigm deals with the effect. And one 
we would hope we can begin to deal with causes. What we do know from trauma and attachment theory is that in children, where children have disrupted attachment experiences and have experienced developmental trauma, they develop a heightened need to control. We also know that people demonstrating the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder because of their level of hypervigilance also develop a heightened need to control their environment. Of course it goes alongside the the sense that the, the world around them is out of control. Absolutely. And also, to some large extent, the world within them mm-hmm. is out of control. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I found very striking in the Hitting Home program was when Sarah Ferguson was inside a prison uh, and was speaking with some men who had actually received a sentence for their, their violence towards partners There was, in certainly two of the examples, a real sense of confusion. Now, some people may say that, oh, that's that person's attempt to appear as if they don't have to take responsibility. Well, perhaps so. Or, alternatively, it could actually be true. It could be actual confusion. Yeah. Uh, And... You know, they were saying they didn't know. They were not able to accept an internal locus of control. That was very clear from the things that they said. But what if that were true? right? What if that is, in fact, what sat behind both of those men's urge and need to lash out and control in a violent way? What does that say to us about what they then require in order to achieve a different way of being in the world? And it would make sense that they would have the confusion Hmm. there. Um, And it's no different to the children that you and I, and Claudia and Hoshi, Hmm. you know, that that we work with. Yeah, or lots of our listeners work with. And lots of our Hmm. listeners. You know, Hmm. it's no different to those children who... um, uh, are living in in the aftermath of a very traumatic early childhood hmm. and who are suddenly triggered into a hyper-aroused state. Hmm. They act accordingly and actually without thinking hmm. because their brain stems become activated, the amygdala is fully flourishing as the rest of the brain, or the cognitive functions become really restricted hmm. and... Actually, they really do not know what they're doing. Mm. And actually, they, they're not making a choice mm. to act out in the way that they are at the time. And so afterwards, when they feel better and mm. when they can think, and we say to them, what happened? What do they say? They say I don't know. I don't know. And, and here, I think it is really important to restate that issue of a both-and paradigm. So what we're not saying is that because those people are in a state that is trauma-triggered, if you like, or a state of heightened arousal at that moment, that they are not responsible for what they are doing. What we're saying is 
that we need to understand what it is that's leading to it if we have any hope of helping them to not do it. Mm-hmm. Or if we have any hope to actually implement early childhood programs and interventions that are going to prevent these things happening in their future life. Indeed. And it is absolutely awful to watch. I mean, certainly elements of that program were extremely uncomfortable and upsetting to watch. You know, the the conversations that were being had with victims and the stories that were being unfolded were excruciating. So what we're not what we're saying is we're not seeking to in any way underestimate the pain that this behaviour produces. But what we're I suppose querying is what is the way to actually be able to prevent violence. It's one thing to punish after the fact, but that doesn't prevent and we can get angry about it. Mm. We can get angry about all the violence happening mm. everywhere, all we like, and all the injustice and all the victims. But mm. we've got to do something about it. When people yeah. say, enough is enough, we've got to do something. Mm. Now, I, another thing I heard in that program when I was watching last night was there's <clears throat> a lot of reference to, and I think it's very justified to have reference to the need for education in... Uh, res- respectful relationships Absolutely. and what that means. Right? This is a vital part of what's got to mm. happen mm. Um, in order to reduce the violence. It's one vital part. Yeah. But you know what? I doubt, knowing everything that we know and knowing the kids that we work with, I doubt very much that it is everything that has to happen. I, I, I think it's mm. only a part of what has to happen. And I think that the other part that has to happen is to recognise the role of trauma uh, and how we need to intervene and how we need to assist people, whether they are children or whether they are adults who are already perpetrating. How do we... What what needs to happen for these people to actually heal so that someone else doesn't get hurt or killed? And I think one of the points that was made uh, in the Q&A session after the program had gone to air, was a very important point in terms of programs for men, programs for children who are in households where there is domestic violence. The programs for both of those groups are somewhat different, but they need to be able to run for longer than 10 weeks. And... Most of the programs that were talked about were short-term programs. And we know that, I mean, change is about changing the brain, and mm. building new neural pathways. And mm. that's, that's a physiological process that yes. we know takes time. How many children have we seen really, truly change? There's been so many, mm. but none of them happened over 10 weeks. Nothing happens in 10 weeks. But um, <laughs> if... If any inroad is going to be made into this scourge of family violence, which it absolutely is, it must pay attention to the causes of violence and the in the individual. And the cause isn't always not knowing, because I think people think mm. they don't know it's wrong, 
So they do it. So what we have to do is is take a few weeks to educate them in teaching them that it's wrong. Now, I know that that is part of the solution and an important part. I'm going to keep saying it. But also, if it's in fact not that they don't know it's wrong, in fact, many of them actually perpetrating violence and know full well that it's wrong, Yes, because that's right. evidenced very clearly by their unwillingness to take responsibility well, exactly. for it. I know it's wrong. Right? Yeah. So why is it still happening? Yes. So there, if it's still happening, there must be another cause other than mm. not knowing it's wrong. Mm. Right. And the kind of work that needs to be undertaken in programs needs to be not cognitively focused. Because what I saw in the program last night in a men's group inside a prison was a very cognitive approach about what were you thinking immediately before this event occurred. Now, if indeed we use a trauma-informed paradigm of thinking, the answer to that would be, well, not very much. Because if that person is in some kind of a triggered state... They won't be thinking. So what happens, I think, in those circumstances is that people, and certainly in a prison setting, in any kind of custodial setting, your your freedom to say, oh, I wasn't thinking of anything, is limited. You kind of have to come up with the goods. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you might produce what you imagine you might have been thinking. If you were, in fact, able to think. And it's interesting. I've heard children do this. Mm. So then you ask yourself, well, what is the value of that? Mm. So uh, a cognitively based approach, I think, is going to have, again, limited usefulness. So short-term cognitive approaches have limited usefulness. What we And I guess on that continuum... Mm. Some people would benefit from that approach more than others on a, on a continuum of, I guess, cognitive capacity. Yeah. And understanding and accepting that there's different reasons yes. for family violence. Absolutely. Right? We're, we're kind of generalising because yeah. we're trying to look at something that is not being talked about. No. And, and what we're also, I think, doing is talking about a massive issue in a very short space of time. Um, very strongly to make the point and to encourage that the services that get utilised in terms of assisting to break this cycle of violent behaviour really need to be trauma-informed. And we know what the figures are in terms of violent behaviour and the link between violent behaviour and post-traumatic stress disorder conditions and developmental trauma and violent behaviour. We know that something like 95% of the prison population have unresolved childhood trauma. We know that uh, people who abuse substances, drugs and alcohol, have high percentages of unresolved childhood trauma. Those factors, use of alcohol, use of drugs as disinhibitors, um, those sorts of effects are 
also immediate triggers for disinhibition that yep. leads to violent behaviour. They're not the cause, but they can lead to, on a more superficial level, the removal of any social barriers or understandings mm. that actually might stand in the way of a person's violent behaviour. They are not the cause. They are just another effect yep. that leads to another yeah, effect. Yeah, that's right. Um, alcohol itself doesn't cause no. um, violence, mm. um, but it certainly takes away any mm. anything that might hold on mm. to to keep things at exactly. bay. Exactly. But we need to be able to understand the place of those factors mm. at the same time as understanding what in the person's individual makeup and experience has led to their inability to manage their behaviour in such a way that they are not harmful to an intimate partner. And of course, that is another factor that I think is really important to think about, which is the relationship between the types of emotions that become projected onto people with whom one has a love or an intimate relationship with and the emergence of controlling and uh, unbridled violence. Because again, there is likely to be a high, a high correlation between that and unresolved relationships with parental figures. Because there's... There's, uh, I mean, you know, fo following that, of course, we've been talking about the triggered violence, mm. you know, real violent, you know, events that happen where people get hurt. Um, and there's other ways that people are harmed and other forms of family violence that are all around that control. Mm. Someone Absolutely. being either financially and emotionally yep. abusive. Mm. Um, and, you know, those can also be linked to... Uh, childhood trauma. Absolutely. So, I don't think it's that. I don't think that we're saying anything particularly earth-shattering in a no. way. If we say that childhood trauma sits beneath many social ills, but I think to not consider it in relation to such an important social ill that is, according to most people's accounts at epidemic proportions. I think to not incorporate those understandings would be a real oversight. I, I don't know if it is just an oversight, though. I think that people are reluctant to talk about it, uh, partly due to the reasons that you mentioned earlier, which is that it somehow feels like you're excusing... Mm wrong behaviour if you find a reason for mm. it. And I think that once we get over that, we're mm. going to start to find some solutions. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean we're excusing stuff that obviously should not happen. No. But we've got to find a way of reducing it. If we've got this block mm. around talking about the causes, talking about that child's mm. trauma. Um, yes, I think, I think I agree with you, yeah. Stefan. And I think that uh, part... Oh, dare I say it, part of the reasons behind that lie within uh, political understandings. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah. and frameworks. Well, and I think we, I think we have to move beyond that. Mm. We have to move into another paradigm completely, which is a humane paradigm that is humane towards, absolutely towards the victims of violence, but also to the perpetrators. Well, actually, it reminds me of... Um, I remember I was doing some training for some prison officers um, once, and I met some, you know, really wonderful, very intelligent uh, prison officers who take theory on board and use mm. it really well. I did one day, though, come up against some opposition, which happens from time to time in training, when something's very confronting for people. Now, this one prison officer said to me when I was... I was teaching and training about developmental trauma. And he said, you're telling me that I now have to be all understanding about this guy's childhood. He's, come, he's in here because he's done the wrong thing. And all of a sudden, I've got to feel sorry for him. Right? Hmm. And I said, well, actually, uh, aside from the fact that you are staff in the prison, not actually an executioner, mm. uh, and that you, you know, we have a role to play. Actually, I'm not asking you to feel sorry for them at all. In fact, I'm not even asking you to sympathise. Mm. Not one bit. Mm. You can still believe that they are evil. You mm. can believe they are absolutely evil. But what it will do is it will give you an understanding as to the causes of their behaviours and responses. Mm. And you know what will happen in the end? You'll have a better shift. Mm. Because <laughs> you'll actually know what it is that, that you're dealing with. Mm. And if you respond in the right way, you know what else might happen? You might prevent someone else from getting hurt by this person. Mm. So it's not just about actually finding excuses yeah. and sympathy. Well, it's not about that at all. It's, not, it's nothing uh, to do with uh, that. Uh, uh, because, in fact, there is no, absolutely nowhere in trauma theory, anywhere, that says, oh, don't do anything to actually change these people's behaviour that's trauma-driven. Mm. Just feel sorry for them. No. There is nothing. There is. Uh, it was actually a very common misapprehension when... We were running Hurstbridge, yeah, that we yeah. somehow, here go those quote marks in yeah, my fingers yeah. again, let kids get away with stuff. Let them get away with things without yeah. consequences, which is, of course... Not punishments, yeah. It's the but, euphemism. But we, we never use. let those kids get away with anything. Yeah. Uh, it's just that we actually made sure that they really didn't get away with it, yeah. that they really had to take responsibility. In other words, that they didn't do it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And that they did good things yeah. instead. And, and in fact, the Verso report shows that when you apply that approach, that's what happens. People's lives get better. So again, it's not as if we're sitting here shooting in, you know, our mouths off into the breeze with no evidence. There is evidence from many fields, from the fields of neuroscience and from our own endeavours in Victoria that have been evaluated. Absolutely. The evidence is Again, there. I've said this in past episodes, Adela, that um, we're not just talking about our own ideology and belief no. systems. We're, we're, we're just talking about a, a really well-founded stream of science now. Mm. Um, and that's where people have got to argue 
with me about. I mean, recently oh. I've had people arguing with me saying, I don't believe in it, what oh. you're doing. And I say, well, this is not about belief. I don't want to know what you believe in. I want to know the evidence. Oh. So either oh. I'm right oh. or I want you to show me I'm wrong. Oh. So, um, yes, but, it- you know, also on that note, I urge our listeners, you know, if there's anything at all that's that's really you know, confronting for you out there in terms of what we're saying. If you want to know more, um, get in touch with us. Come along to the workshop or get in touch with us. Um, put some comments in into Facebook or email us um, and we can give you the information that you need because I think that you and I are both really, truly, genuinely passionate about um, spreading this information out there. Absolutely. and um, And I think that maybe next year we have to give some serious thought to how we use Nightlamp to actually consider doing some work in the family violence space. I I think we might. I think it might be time for us to do some work in that space. Well, inadvertently we have been, but not directly. Because, of course, we're always in that space Of course. Um, And also with children who are affected in that space. Um, but I think that's where we have to go and put some of our efforts next year. I think so. I think I, I like that idea. Yes. And, uh, and I think I'd like to go there. If listeners have suggestions of places where we might be useful, get in touch with us once again. Um, well, once again, Stefan, we've had an interesting and windy road discussion, but I, I think it's taken to us to some very interesting uh, places. A really great episode. Um, thanks once again, Adela. Um, Thank you, Stefan. Until we meet again, look, I'm going to take a selfie so I can post with this podcast. <laughs> I took it. Hey. Uh, And thank you, everyone, for having us once again, and we'll see you in episode 12. Yes, which may be before Christmas, or it may be in 2016. It may be on Christmas Day. Oh, yes. Well, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. See you later. (coughs) Thank you.